and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we're continuing our series on deposed royals of a sort. Claire told me earlier that maybe this this episode we're going to talk about doesn't quite fit neatly into that box, but we're continuing our dead royals conversation. Yeah, this one's a little bit of a cheat, but that's okay. That's okay. I mean, they're all dead eventually, right? Yeah, yeah. I think if we want to be as broad as we can, but um, this is definitely a story of someone losing their throne by violence. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It fits. So before we jump too far into the story we're going to tell today, I did have a little bit of a royal oops from last time, although not so much an oops, but more of a clarification and answering a question that you, Claire, had asked during the episode on the Romanovs, which was specifically what was the Russian Empire? Ah. Yes. And I thought I knew it was mostly containing what then became the USSR and maybe a little bit more. And that's pretty much correct. So at the time of 1917, when the, the, the Romanov dynasty came to an end, and specifically at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk at the end of World War One, where Russia um, made peace, a separate peace with Germany. And I mentioned that the terms were really, really bad. Um, what they were giving up was a lot of this land and specifically the lands that were covered at this point by the Russian empire were most of Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Finland, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, um, the central Asian states. So like Turkestan, Um, Tajikistan, most of the Baltic states, as well as a significant portion of Poland. So, and they basically butted right up against what still was the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire at that time. So it sounds like a lot like the USSR. A lot like the USSR, except also including what then became the buffer states between the USSR and Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Hmm. So that would be Poland, Finland, the Baltics, those states that weren't, or maybe the Baltics actually were in the USSR, but but it included some states that were not strictly in the USSR, but um, at the time of the end of World War I were under the domain of the Russian Empire. So, sounds like a large empire. It really was. It's actually the third largest in history at oh. one point, so not a small piece of territory. I mean, even what what we look at as modern-day Russia is clearly not small. So when you're adding all essentially all the lands that border it, it is quite a large piece of territory. It's a nice bit of clarification. Um, it's definitely bigger than I thought it would have. Yes. Um, all right. Well, I just have a quick piece of gossip. There's, you know, I, I think it's nice to take a little break from the Harry and Meghan saga um, and there hasn't been much in the way of that anyway, just a lot of unfounded rumors. But maybe, you know, the bigger thing that happened was Brexit happened. The real one. The real one, not the Megxit. So it's going to be interesting to see if this impacts the monarchy at all. I think, interestingly, one of the things that a lot of people are predicting is that it may impact the United Kingdom of it all because Scotland is apparently very upset. And I didn't realize this, but apparently one of the reasons why a lot of people voted in Scotland to remain in the United Kingdom when they had that vote on whether or not to leave was on the promise that they would stay in the EU. Correct. Um, Because the Scottish people really benefit from being in the European Union. They so do, now, as does the, um, as does Northern Ireland. Yes. Which it became very clear Parliament had thought not at all about in this Brexit deal. Right. So now that that's off the table, Scotland especially has been very vocal about wanting to stay in the EU. So uh, just, I bring that up because um, 
in the last couple of weeks, I think this is a little bit old, but William was named Lord High Commissioner of the Church of Scotland, which this is apparently a ceremonial position that kind of gets passed around every year or so between high-ranking royals. But I thought it was really interesting that the Queen named William uh, to this position in Scotland. It's almost like she's sending a message because um, it's not always a prince or princess who holds the role, but definitely sends a message. Hey, Scotland, here's here's your royal religious overseer. You're still part of us. That's you know, and I, I'm getting. I have seen a lot of social media stories lately where the royals seem to be spending quite a bit of time in Scotland. And I wonder if that's part of an overall strategy. But it does beg the question of, you know, the UK is a political block, but also a symbolic domain of Queen Elizabeth and one day her son. And it opens this this question of how, how can you have both or either or can you? Like, are they reliant on the other if politically the UK, United Kingdom ceases to exist, do you still have it symbolically? Does Scotland still want Elizabeth to be their sovereign? Does, no, does I don't think Northern you... Ireland still want that. And I think, I think you're right. I think the answer is no. And I think that's very, very problematic probably for the monarchy because I would imagine there's some revenue that they pull from some of these places and... You know, it's something that I think would hurt a lot to lose if I'm the royal family and these are, quote, my domains. Yeah. To have them taken would... away by poor decision making of your parliament. Yeah. I mean, your kingdom would shrink, calling into further question the need for your throne. Existence. Yeah. So it's interesting. I just brought that up because I thought that that was like a really interesting tie-in there. Um, and I think Brexit sort of happened with a whimper because, um, you know, it was sort of years in the making. And also I think the Harry and Meghan drama kind of overshadowed it, which is probably what a lot of people were happy about. But anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was interesting. But you're right. It's an interesting question of now what? And, you know, when you we look at a lot, we've been looking at a lot of history from this lens of royal impact, royal rule. I don't think it's a bad idea to look at current events the same way, especially right now with what's going on in the UK. So, Yeah, I mean, it all it all feeds each other. So five years down the road, the impact of this will be really interesting to see. Yeah. Um, but... Tonight, we're going to talk about, we're going to go way, way, way into the past, about about a thousand years, give or take. Pretty much the whole way. I mean, mm -hmm. if we think about modern, not modern, I guess, but if we think about England as we know it, you're going back to the beginning. Yes, because ostensibly this episode is about Harold II of England, who was deposed by really he lost he was more like defeated in battle than deposed or anything but um he famously lost his crown to William the Conqueror so this is kind of a backdoor episode on to William the Conqueror and Edward the Confessor because to tell one story you kind of have to tell them all since they're so entwined with each other and all of the events that transpired between Harold and William directly lead back to the rule of Edward. So yes. we're kind of and covering all three. Anybody's ever interested in a woven comic book version of this story, check out the Bayou Tapestry. <laughs> yes. So um, I was going to bring that up at the end. That's, okay. That is something that exists and tells this tale. And it does feature all three of these players. And it's sort of a mystery item. Nobody really knows where it came from or who commissioned it. And it's not even really a tapestry. It's actually an embroidery. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I think if you're, if you're looking for a visual depiction of all of this, that's where you'd want to go. Although it is a bit confusing from what I understand. It so. is, but it's really cool. 
All right, so um, we're going to start with Edward the Confessor, who is the last Anglo-Saxon king of England. It's That's how he's considered, basically. Um, he's known as the sainted king of England. He built Westminster Abbey, or at least started it. And, um, you know, all that good stuff. He definitely now is considered... He looms large in British history. We talked it's about... It's basically his relics that are used in the coronation. Yes. His crown, um, you know, his body is at Westminster Abbey in the shrine. They pretty much built it all up around him. So he's definitely a big figure in British history. But despite all of that, he also committed that all-too-common sin of dying without an heir. Oops. Yes, so he left a really shaky succession. So here's kind of the story of all of that and how it played out. So Edward the Confessor had no children with his wife, Edith. Um, so it's not just that he didn't have male heirs, it's that they didn't have children. They didn't have any children. Now, okay. no one's quite sure why. It could just be that they were infertile. It could be that they never consummated their marriage because he was known to be, or his reputation is as being quite pious and saint-like and above such human activities. It could be that he hated his wife, or it could be a combination of the three. It's, you know, kind of, it would be kind of odd for a ruler of that time to completely abstain, just given the need for an heir. But whatever the case, no children from his marriage. And he didn't have any illegitimate children either. He also has no siblings living at the time of his death, which is kind of a feat because he was his father's seventh son. And his father also had daughters. So he's basically the last surviving son. And I think a lot of his sisters are gone by the time he dies as well. Um, but that's because they'd all been wiped out by the Danes. So you have to back up here a little bit because Edward's father was defeated by the Dan Danish king Canute. And his mother married this guy. So she basically abandoned her children. They're sent into exile in Normandy where she's from. And Edward grew up with no expectation that he would sit on the throne of England. Um, Canute was a Danish king, but he was also the king of England from the time of his invasion to the time of his death. So is this Danish invasion, is this, this is later than the Saxon invasion? Right. Well, the Saxons invaded, and then, like, when you're talking the Danish invasion, you're talking Vikings. Okay. Yeah. But this isn't the original Viking invasion. This is, they would come in waves. This is like a later wave, right? Yes. This is basically the last wave of the Vikings. Okay. Kind of. All right. I'm trying to like just set the stage here. Okay. So then when Canute died, his son Harold, not to be confused with our Harold II, um, held England for Canute's son, Hertha Canute. Love these names. Right. So, but when this happened, Edward and his brother Alfred are both adults, or almost adults by this point. They're both living in Normandy or thereabouts, and they decide they're going to go back to England and claim their birthright. So they both went separately to challenge Harold for Hartha Canute's throne. Um, Alfred gets the worst of it. So Alfred is captured, and he's... Captured by a man named Godwin, Earl of Wessex, who was a Saxon earl, but he had ties to the Danish family. And as a, I don't know if that's the reason why, or for whatever reason, when Canute invaded, he gave him his support. And as a result, he's been rewarded as the Earl of Wessex, and he enjoys considerable power in England. So he captures Alfred blinds him to basically remove him as a viable option for king. 
Um, unfortunately, it's the 11th century, and since his eyes had been stabbed out with hot pokers, he also died. Yikes. Because he wasn't going to survive that, not in the 11th century. Um, and Edward never forgot about this or forgave Godwin for this. That's so brutal. It's very brutal. These people didn't mess around. I was going to ask you if you've seen any of the show The Last Kingdom on Netflix. No, is this what it's about? No, it's about the time of Alfred the Great, I think it is. But it, it, it deals a lot with these Saxon and Danish. There's a whole, like, one day we should talk about the pre-Norman um, oh, yeah. English kings because there is a lot of this Danish, Viking, Saxon interweaving and... Really, it's an entirely different England than the one that the Normans introduced, which I'm sure you'll talk a little bit about here. But um, it's a very interesting society, and it's very different from where we end up. I also was going to ask you, if you, did you know that Jessica Simpson has a son named Ace Canute? Yes, I did know that. <laughs> which I always thought was really funny. I was like, do you know who Canute is? <laughs> Well, I think that just, I think she must have some heritage there or something. Or her husband does or something, yeah. Yeah. But basically, I mean, it's it's a different order of things. It's a different code of moral ethics. Um, It's very violent. Very violent. The whole power structure is different. I mean, the Earl is basically as powerful as you get underneath the king. They don't have dukes or anything like that. And Earl is more like a title of, like, you're in charge of defending a territory. And we talked a little bit about that when we talked about the peerage. I don't know if you're going to get to it, but the English counties, as we know them today, are this weird kind of melding of this system of earldoms with the Norman concept of land. So, like, you have, like, it basically turned into this idea of English counties and you you end up with earls and dukes and the like. So this is like kind of a precursor. A lot of these territories were carved out by the earls in this time. So you have like Wessex, Sussex. Yeah, I was going to say that. You actually just took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) So thank (laughs) you for doing that. Um, Yeah, earl is pretty much the one holdover from pre-Norman England that still exists as a title in England today. So Godwin is a big deal, is the point that I'm trying to make. Um, Edward, after this happens, retreats back to Normandy, and Harold, the brother of Canute the king, takes over as king, even though his nephew is supposed to be ruling. Um, He later dies, and Hertha Canute takes his rightful place on the throne. Now, at this time when this happens, Hertha Canute invites Edward to come back to England to be his heir because after all they are actually half brothers because they share a mother yes and Hartha Canute is dying at this point he has no heirs so he says all right fine my brother Edward will be my heir Um, and the reason I just wanted to quickly fly through all of that is that it's relevant because it all plays into why Edward's succession was so messed up so when he becomes king he he doesn't he doesn't really have any supporters to his own name. I mean, he's been living in exile. This power structure has been continuing on in England, and he can only really be accepted and installed into power with the support of Godwin, who's the most powerful earl in England. And Godwin is happy to support Edward, but his support really takes the form of this kind of like threatening control. So Edward's not really, at least at the beginning, ruling in his own powerful way. So the first thing Godwin does is he basically forces Edward to marry his daughter Edith. Um, This will allow Godwin's family to maintain their grasp over power, and Edward doesn't really have a choice because he needs to be accepted as king. So that's one of the things about why you know they never had children and that's one of the questions why is did he just feel forced into this and did he just decide he wasn't going to give Godwin the satisfaction of seeing his grandchildren on the throne nobody knows I mean it's hard to say but 
it is a little strange. So, you know, even though they don't have children, naturally Godwin feels like his own family should maintain this power. So he doesn't, he starts to basically look at his own sons as Edward's heirs. Um, Before we get to um, Harold, who is Godwin's son, there is another possible successor in Edgar the Aethling. And Aethling means throne-worthy. Okay. He's the last male of the House of Wessex. And we'll put a little bit of a pin in that. But basically, he's the grandson of Edmund Ironside, who was Edward's older half-brother. We're still talking about Edward the Confessor here? Yes, because remember, he's his father's seventh son. Okay. And he was, like, towards the bottom. Okay. So So this is his... This is his older half-brother of his... So his... Sorry, Edward's mother was his father's second wife. Okay, I see. Yes. So Edmund Ironside was significantly older than him. So this is, like... Edgar the Aethling is like his grandnephew or something. Edward's yes. grandnephew. Okay. Yes. And at the time, he's like 13. Okay. And Edmund Ironside was the one who was defeated by Canute. But here's the thing. So all I'm getting at is there is a, what we would consider a rightful heir in England. Or not in England. He's been sent to Turkey or Hungary or somewhere. He's, he's also in exile. It doesn't matter. The point is that he's out there and no one is considering him as a viable candidate because the thing about the Saxon kings is that succession didn't have to be linear under the Saxon tradition because if you think about it, they're just warring tribes for a really long time. So the idea is that when the leader dies, you want to pick the strongest successor. And Edward's young. He's not ready to lead. So it's generally accepted that Edgar, yes, he's generally accepted that he's not going to be Edward's heir, but he is there. Well, he's not physically there, but he exists. Right. Yes. He's on the page. He's on the map. So the question is, if that's not an option, then who does Edward want to lead? And the attempts to answer this question led to war and the eventual Norman conquest. And is Edward weighing in on this at all? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So the first candidate is Harold Godwinson. That's how he's known. He is Godwin's son, who is this all-powerful Earl of Wessex. But not of the House of Wessex. He has no blood claim to the throne. Okay. Because this is, sorry, I'm just trying to clarify because Godwin is the Earl of Wessex. Yes, but he's been given that role by the Danish king. Yes, but Edgar is the last member of the House of Wessex. Yes, yes. Got it. Yes. uh, Presumably they they ruled over Wessex before the Danish invasion? Yes, yes. Got it. Because this is going back to, like you said, when all these counties were their own kingdoms. This is almost like a pre-War of the Roses, War of the Roses. A little bit. If you think about the relationships of these people to each other. I mean, they're all, you know, sure, like, I mean, Godwin and his family are not related to Wessex, except for his daughter Edith is married to Edward. But they don't have, it's not like cousins fighting each other. But yes, I mean, some of those dynamics are definitely there. So... Harold Godwinson is, for a lot of people, the obvious choice to succeed Edward. You know, Godwin worked really hard to maintain his power due to his relationship with King Canute and later because he's done all of this work to keep his family close to the throne. So the people in England are used to Godwin's family in a position of power. And as we've mentioned, Harold's sister is Edith, the wife of Edward, the the confessor. Um, but you know, again, Harold himself has no blood claim to the throne. And for most of Edward's reign, his candidacy as his successor is quite tenuous, especially once Edward banishes Godwin from England and sends Edith to a nunnery. Get so, thee to a nunnery. Yes. Ooh. 
So, okay, Henry VIII does not have the monopoly on shocking ways of setting aside your wife. Let me just put that out there. So what's going on here? So, okay, in 1051, Godwin's cousin is appointed as Archbishop of Canterbury. And Edward is like, no, 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 I do not want this guy serving as Archbishop. So he puts, puts his own choice, who's a guy from Normandy, into the position. This causes a kerfluffle, and look, the details don't really matter here. All you have to know is that it leads to the Archbishop, who was Edward's choice for the role, accusing Godwin of plotting to kill Edward. Both sides react, rush to their respective corners, take up their arms, but Godwin's like, I don't really want to fight with you, Edward. I want to settle this peacefully. And Edward's like, this is my chance to get my revenge. So he says, that's fine. You can have peace. But my conditions are that you return my brother Alfred to me, like, whole and well and obviously alive. So that's a problem because Alfred is dead because he was blinded by hot pokers. And so it's not possible. So Godwin realizes Edward is not going to entertain the idea of peace. He flees England and Edith gets sent to the nunnery. So Godwin knows at this point that Edward knows that he blinded and killed his brother? Yes. Okay, so Edward's saying this as like, here would here are what my conditions would be, but you can't possibly meet them. So yeah, okay. It's basically he's he's been biding his time, and Godwin is finally in a position where Edward can exert some control over him. Okay, and so he sets out terms that he can't possibly meet, and Godwin flees. Clever. It is clever, but it doesn't last that long because Godwin is the one that's just been pulling all the strings. So he has all the support. So he eventually raises an army and comes back to England, and the threat of civil war is too high. So Edward capitulates, takes back his wife, lets Godwin back into the inner circle, and they just kind of pretend like nothing happened. But in that time... 1051, this crucial year where Godwin is banished, the door gets opened for candidate number two, which would be William, Duke of Normandy. Heard of him? Yes, you may have heard of him. So, he's actually related to Edward. They are related through Edward's mother. So, William's grandfather was Edward's maternal uncle. So they're first cousins once removed. But not on the side that would give him a legitimate heir to the throne of England. Yes, because he is not related to the House of Wessex. Okay. William is actually a bastard. Mm. He's the son of the Duke of Normandy, but he was only legitimized because the Duke had no legitimate children, and in fact, no other children. Mm. Um, so actually most of his life, he's known as William the Bastard, not the Conqueror, which came much later. And now here's the thing. Edward has a soft spot for Normandy. He spent much of his exile there and, um, you know, he appoints a Norm, a Norman into the role of archbishop. So you can see he, he thinks highly of the Norman people. But Normandy at this point is not a territory of England no no it's a dukedom in France which you know France is operating kind of like England was a few years before this where it's really all these like rival dukedoms there is a king of France but he's not as powerful as the dukes that he's purportedly rules over so he doesn't so Normandy is like essentially an independent state yes just like Anjou just like Burgundy they all kind of pay um, fealty to the king of France but they don't have to do what he says basically okay it's kind of they're much richer than him they have more land than him it's it's really it's really an interesting dynamic so 
William, by the time all of this is taking place, has already been through a lot. So his mother was the, they, it's not really clear. They think she was the daughter of a tanner. Hmm. So she was apparently a mistress of the Duke, but they never got married. She eventually got married and had two more kids. So William does have some half siblings. It's interesting because his father died when William was only eight years old. And he had been legitimized, and so he takes over this dukedom at the age of eight, and he has to navigate being governed by people who are just using him as a pawn for power. Um, in fact, his entire minority is basically just all of these scuffles between these French noblemen who are trying to use him to better their position, and the you know what we would call a regent keeps changing hands because people just keep. Like it's it's that's like Game of Thrones right there. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were opposed to William himself because of his birth, so that it was really hard for them to accept him as a legitimate duke. And there were also a few rival claimants, although no one really took them seriously because his father made it clear, "This is my heir. This is my son." Um, but it, it took a while for people to accept it, and basically, it only he only succeeds because he swears his oath to the French king. So the French king steps in and helps him out. Um, And he gets some help from the church because he has a great uncle who's a member of the clergy. So the church kind of steps in and helps him. And eventually he just grows up. And apparently he's, you know, a powerful guy. He's smart. He's able to navigate all of this. So he basically grows up, consolidates his power, and kind of takes control of the dukedom or duchy, whatever we want to call it. And then he's mostly preoccupied at this time with his little skirmishes with his neighbors, Anjou and Burgundy. So they had kind of been trying to encroach a little while he was occupied with just maintaining his grasp on his seat and once he grows up he sort of kind of beats them back and that's how he's spending his time so he's been busy he's been busy um you know he marries matilda of flanders which is also um to his benefit because flanders at this point in time is kind of a big player so that brings him a lot of wealth and power and a uh, an ally you know in that little stretch of coastline across the way from England. So the story goes, though, that when Edward is beefing with Godwin in 1051, that he promised William the crown of England when he died. They are cousins. William may or may not have traveled to England to swear an oath to him. It's not pretty clear. Although that may have happened because around this time, William falls out with the French king. Because mm. you can't swear loyalty to two kings, obviously. Right. So that's kind of evidence for this happening. But William kind of had a lot of these alliances that would come and go, so it's not completely clear. Um, what is clear is that William at least came away with the idea that he was Edward's successor. So mm. he's, by all accounts, convinced of this. Um, And then what's interesting is that Harold actually traveled to Normandy at some point, probably around 1064, um, although it's better to say that he was shipwrecked Mm. (laughs) there. And he eventually, he gets kidnapped by a count, and then eventually he gets sort of dumped in William's court. And William just kind of takes him on campaign with him as he's fighting these little battles and um, later he claimed that... This is in 1064 or 1054? 1064. Yeah. I'm just saying that, like, William thinks of himself as Edward's confessor. And now we have a period in time after that allegedly occurred where Harold is traveling to Normandy. And so while he's there, L- William claims that during this time, Harold himself swore fealty to William. So that's the story is nobody's quite sure if that's the case. Did Edward send Harold there? Did he tell mm. Harold, I've, I've promised my crown to William, so you're going to go swear fealty? Or what really probably happened is that William kind of forced him into it 
because he's basically got him as a hostage while they're traveling around on this campaign. And it's called a guestage, Claire. Okay. It's a, it's a guest who's really your hostage. Yeah. <laughs> so the story goes that they end up and, um, you know, they're having their bro time and, William somehow manipulates Harold into swearing this oath over these holy relics, which from what I read are just like some saint bones or something. Probably. But it's, you know, supposed to carry some weight. And I'm guessing like Harold didn't really have much of a choice because he's surrounded by all of William's supporters and soldiers in Normandy. And William's like, oh, by the way, did you know that Edward promised me the throne? And you're here to swear fealty to me, right? And Harold's kind of like, yeah, totally. Um, That's what I'm here for. So no one's really clear how this went down. But it does seem that at some point Harold did swear an oath to William because it comes into play later. So I've set the stage, hopefully, and Edward dies without explicitly naming an heir. So on his deathbed, after, you know, he's sort of reconciled with his wife, reconciled with Godwin's family. Godwin at this point has died. Um, On his deathbed, he tells Harold, who succeeded to his father's earldom, he says, I'm leaving my wife and my country in your protection. So Harold's like, he just offered me the throne. He's... Putting his wife and country in my protect- protection. What else could this mean? William, meanwhile... It could mean a lot. <laughs> it could mean a lot, yeah. William, meanwhile, believes the crown has been promised to him. Um, which, side note, historians pretty much agree that Edward probably didn't do that because under Saxon tradition, it wasn't his crown to promise. They didn't... The king didn't... Like, there was all this brouhaha over him naming an heir but it was really up to the surviving Englishman to pick the king so would it even have mattered really if he had named an heir if he had explicitly named one and had all of his barons and everyone swear fealty to someone while he was alive that would have carried a lot of weight but he didn't do that and he can't just tell William you're my heir and not tell anybody else and expect it to be followed without some contention. But, but then in Normandy, that's how it works. So William's like, okay, I'm the heir. I'm just going to sit here in Normandy and the English will come to me and pay their respects. But astonishingly, no, like no one comes. He's shocked. They have a king. Yeah, they have a king. In fact, they do have a king because Harold has the advantage of being in England and he's crowned in Westminster Abbey on in January of 1066. He's the first king to be crowned in Westminster Abbey. Good for him. Yeah. He doesn't last very long. This is a lot long. like the Matilda Stephen battle where it was like a race to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I mean Harold has the advantage of the power of the earldom of Wessex. He's in England. Everyone there is sort of like, yeah, you're king. Um, But William's across the channel, like sitting in his castle, like I'm king. Where are all my subjects? And he's basically what you're seeing here is there's a way it happens in Normandy and a way it happens in England. And William's operating under the Norman succession, which does go linearly. Um, So that's kind of issue number one. So Harold is crowned, and um, William immediately plans an invasion, which takes some time because he doesn't really have much support, certainly not from those within England. And he actually, like, has some trouble mustering enough of an army to invade England. So this takes some time. And while he's trying to do that, Harold is busy being king of England, dealing with Norse invaders. Um, And there's like a whole story that I'm not going to get into. But um, there was a member of the 
royal family in Norway who also felt like he had a claim to the throne of England. So after Edward died, he set sail and he was pretty handily beaten back. But um, he's kind of known as the last Viking because this is the last time a quote-unquote Viking force set sail and tried to invade England. Hmm. Um, just kind of a fun trivia fact for you. Everybody wants England. Yeah, and it's like really, I don't know. It's don't, like a little backwater yeah, at this point. They were all pretty attached. So, so you know, Harold's dealing with all of that. So William finally sets sail in September of 1066, and he does this primarily with support from the Pope. So the Pope gets involved because, according to William's story about Harold swearing an oath over these holy relics, and now he's been crowned and accepted the throne of England, from the Pope's perspective, Harold is an oath-breaker and therefore has sinned gravely. And also... The Pope, the clergy didn't like him anyway because Harold was married, but he was married in what's called the Danish manner. So what's his, that? his marriage was never consecrated by the church. It oh, basically just... So therefore it didn't happen. It's like common law. They just take up together, have children. It's recognized under Danish law. I mean, Harold and his family were kind of interesting because they were Englishmen, but they very much operated as Danishmen. So well, he's only a couple generations reserved, like from Canute, right? He's so, not related to Canute. No, but his father was an advisor, and yeah, you know, I mean, like they were very man to Canute. So they were very influenced by the Danish. So yeah, that doesn't sit well with the clergy in England, and certainly not with the Pope. So the Pope's like, all right, fine. You know what, William, you're right. You should be king of England. So once the Pope gets on board. He manages to muster up some more support, and so he sets sail for um, England, and he lands in East Sussex after a really rough trip. Like, they lost ships in a storm, and they're pretty battered by the time they land on the coast. But they don't waste any time. He immediately marches his army to Hastings, and I think I read somewhere there's like 240 miles, which is pretty far. Um to march an army, and as soon as they get there, they're basically like, time for battle. Um, they fight, they start in the morning, and they fight for nine hours. Now, sorry, maybe you said this, but Harold has already amassed an army waiting oh, for William? Yes, I'm sorry. So Harold, this entire, t I thought I had written that down, I think I forgot. So while Harold's dealing with this Norse invasion, he knows William is coming for him. So he's dealing Did William with, like send him a letter like I'm I come I don't know the or? specifics of it. I just know that Harold knew that William was coming. So he he's readying his own army for a probable Norman invasion. Like he okay. he knows it's coming. So yeah, William lands on the coast, immediately marches and the armies clash pretty much immediately and they fight for 9 hours on the battlefield. And I, I read somewhere that said that it was really important for William to win on the first day because Harold, so once night fell and the armies would sort of stop fighting for the night, Harold could either retreat a little bit or get reinforcements. William didn't have that option. He had everybody right, with him. because he's in Harold's territory. He's in Harold's territory and he's also, everyone that's with him is all he's getting. He's, he doesn't have the option to go and get more soldiers from anywhere. So he's like, we have, this is do or die. We have to win this battle. And this is like, a, frustratingly, the details of the battle are actually really unclear. Um, it is depicted on the Bayo tapestry, but no one can agree how to interpret it. But the tide of the battle definitely turned in William's favor when Harold is killed. So Harold is defeated in battle. One of two ways. And both of these are depicted in the Bayou Tapestry. It's just no one's quite clear on who in the tapestry in the battle is supposed to be Harold. <laughs> so he's either hacked down by a Norman death squad, which some sources say included William. So he's basically overwhelmed and killed. Or he dies from an arrow through the, through the eye, which is like the more popular tale. Well, it's very, like, poetic if he dies from an arrow through the eye, given what his, his father, father did. 
did, yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter how he dies because he dies on the battlefield. So William has defeated Harold. So after the conquest, William should be all set, right? Except, remember Edgar Aethling? Mm-hmm. He's named king. Is he still in Turkey? No, he came back. Okay. He's named king. Whoopsies. I'm William, guessing he's, like, surprised by this William's news. not even, like, thinking about this guy because he just hasn't been a player on the board. But it's okay because he's really not much of a threat. So William just kind of proceeds as planned. Edgar is never crowned. Um, William's like, all right, I've defeated Harold. Time to get to London and get myself crowned. So he basically like burns his way towards London because he's like trying to cross the River Thames and march into London. And he succeeds in doing so with his force. And by the time he enters the city, everyone's like, yep, you're king. Edgar surrenders. It really, they really didn't put up much of a fight at this point. And I think the thing was, was like the support for Edgar was pretty tepid. Like remember nobody wanted him. It was only Yeah, they're like who's this kid? Yeah, it was only after Harold died that everybody was like okay, maybe that guy can do it, you know. And so by the time William lands, defeats Harold, morale's in the toilet. They're just kind of like, "All right, fine. You can be king." So William is crowned on Christmas Day, 1066. So Harold didn't even make it a year. It's really not an easy transition at this point. So William has to clean house. So all of the earls who opposed him, he kills a lot of them and seizes their lands. Some of them, he lets them buy their lands back. And it really does seem to be on kind of like a case-by-case basis on who he's willing to sort of forgive. But what's interesting is that like he, the ones he kills are like, more English Saxon and the ones he sort of forgives have more affiliation with Normandy so it's almost like Norman law applies to Normans and English law applies to the English so William intended for everyone to coexist but he never really tried to bring them under one set of laws he was just kind of like I'm going to be king of England and the duke of Normandy and Everybody will get along because you're all my subjects, but, like, the English are not subject to Norman law, and the Normans aren't subject to England law. And, you know, again, they have really different ways of doing things. Does William speak English? I'm not sure what language they're all speaking at this time, to be honest with you. Well, the the English are speaking some form of Old English, and I'm assuming the Normans are speaking a form of French. But I'm assuming the English are also speaking some French. Oh, I'm sure the people in the courts yeah, can speak I, French. But... I didn't read anything that said that there was any kind of language barrier, so whatever. They may all be speaking Latin. I don't know. I mean, this is so long ago. I No, they're speaking... They're speaking... So one outcome of this is the modern English language being heavily influenced by French. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously all speaking some kind of common language. But the point I'm trying to make here is that William's purpose was never to homogenize them. Right, well, that's why I'm asking, like, does he, is he making an attempt to speak, like, that's why I'm asking, can he even speak English, or is he just like, nope, I'm Norman, therefore I'm bringing these Norman things over as under my rule, like Norman custom, Norman language, Norman castles. But he's not bringing the Norman language. Like, he's not insisting that everybody in England speak French. Okay. He's, he's, that's what I'm asking. I, yeah. yeah, and that's what I'm trying to say, is that he never intended to homogenize the two lands. Normandy was going to stay Normandy, and England was going to stay England. He just happens to rule over both of them. Okay. And, you. you know, his legacy is kind of complicated because after a time, he goes back to Normandy. So he leaves his half-brother in charge. And this is a time when you see all these castles pop up all over England. And a big reason for that was that was how they kept the peace and they maintained their power. And, you know, Tower of London, anybody? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was built to 
intimidate the people of London and also survive, also provide a place so that the garrison could retreat. And, you know, if there was a revolt, they had a place to just kind of bunker down until it was over. And that's like, that was his strategy all over England. The other thing he's kind of known for is this thing called the Doomsday Book. Have you heard of this? Yes. Is that misspelled? Nope. Okay. That is how it is spelled. It looks like Doomsday. And it kind of took its name from this idea of Doomsday because it was supposed to be like the massive accounting to end all accountings. So he sent all these people all over England and they took an accounting of all the estates in England. So who held what land, who paid, who who was loyal to what lord. It was basically a description of the entire feudal system and what every rung on the ladder consisted of and like how many like down to like how many heads of cattle and things like that um it was exhaustive and no one really knows the purpose behind it um it was probably used to revamp the tax system because they had given out so many exceptions and so many people were exempt from taxes that there wasn't really any like um, effective form of taxation taking place. So that may have been one purpose, but no one like really knows because if it was just for taxes, it was a long time after this before they really reformed the tax system. So it didn't seem to help. Um, I would guess it's also some sort of mapping of like the lands and who was in charge and of what, because, you know, like I was mentioning a little bit earlier, like this invasion really is how we get from this Anglo-Saxon system of earls to incorporating dukes and um, knights and like land ownership and all of that. And I, and I wonder if maybe this is just kind of giving them a starting point of, okay, let's take inventory of everything that's here and then we can better allocate it up and then introduce this new tax system once we know exactly what we have to kind of divvy up. Yeah, that's a good guess. I mean, because nobody knows. Like, everyone's just, all the reasons I've been posited for it really are just guesses. Because the records aren't very clear. Because the Saxon kings, we know a lot about them because they would write everything down. Um, They had chroniclers. I mean, there's this thing called, like, the Saxon Chronicle. And they just, like, wrote everything down. But when William went back to Normandy, they weren't writing about him because he wasn't there so a lot of what happened when he you know was living out the remainder of his years in normandy it's kind of like anyone's best guess Um, that's such an odd choice too right it's like he went to all this trouble to gain the crown of england and then eventually he's just like bye (laughs) yeah i mean normandy was his home and normandy also like you know he spent all this time in england and so he had to co-shore up the borders in Normandy. And then, you know, I don't want to get too into it because I think the interesting stuff really is about, like, the conquest. But by the end of his life, he's got his own issues going on with his own succession. He's got son, uh, his son Robert is pushing back and, um, want, you know, it's kind of a situation where you have an adult son who's not getting his power and his independence as quickly as he likes. So he had a lot of skirmishes with William and, um, you know, fought against him on several fronts. And his wife, Matilda, was kind of instrumental in keeping the peace. And then when she died, that was kind of it. And, you know, when he died, his son, William, was fighting Robert. They were arguing over who was going to get Normandy and who was going to get England. And then his son, Henry, ended up ruling England because... Robert died and William died and Robert was captured and killed and it was just sort of like a free-for-all. So his own succession was pretty messy, which is kind of interesting because you think he would have learned from Edward's mistakes. But as we've seen, they usually don't. And um, and then he died a kind of anticlimactic death for such a conquering king. He... Um, fell ill and died and when he died everybody kind of panicked and rushed off to go protect their own holdings and let like literally his body was left half naked in a church oh like unattended for days so it really wasn't a 
Noble End. Noble End, yeah. It was kind of sad, really. But, you know, I mean, the story about him is really not... You know, and I think that's kind of interesting. It's like everyone talks about him as William the Conqueror, which was a title that didn't come into existence until the 13th century. Um, he was some first time known as William the Great or William the Bastard. But, the- but it's this interesting swerve in English history, right, where you go from this... I'm not going to call it linear because you've explained clearly how this isn't a linear succession, but you go from us Anglo-Saxon succession to this French invasion of a sort. And it we're not really talking too much here about the end result of this, but like there is a before and after in English history. And this is a clear marking point of that. Yeah. Right? And like, I think a lot of people, the Normans invade and, you you enter the alternate timeline. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people talk about it like the Norman conquest, like it's this big conquest, but it as you can see from the circumstances, it, it certainly at the time wasn't pleasant for the people that lost all their lands and everything, but a lot of people came out okay with this. And, um, oh, the one thing I did forget to mention is one of the reasons why I think it carries more weight in history than it did in actuality was this thing called the harrying of the north so Mm. you know the beginning part of his reign was really spent just kind of tamping down these rebellions in England because they really were kind of like who are you and why are you here Um, but it wasn't like a decisive hammer blow it was more like he spent 20 years playing whack-a-mole and there was like an uprising in the north and he didn't really deal with it the way he had been dealing with everything up to that point he just raised the territory burned all the crops and it was really brutal and it was funny because I read this thing that said you know at the time that wasn't necessarily an unheard of form of warfare but even the contemporary people writing about it were like this was a lot like you know they kind of didn't come out and say it but they kind of write about it like it was a little over the top and no one's really sure why he reacted that way like it's kind of sets the stage for this like historical idea of like the north of england has always been a bit harder to contain and a little more independent yeah and it had a really big impact because the people like you you couldn't serve they couldn't survive off the land anymore so they all came south and it, that had a bigger impact than, you know, it really was more like a gradual um, taming of England rather than like this hammer blow conquest. But people talk about it like the Norman conquest because you're right. The, you know, he's followed by Henry I and then you start to see that like Henry II and Stephen and Matilda and I'm sure I'm forgetting people in there, but you you start to see the English system change into the more Norman model. Right. Over Um, like, say, a hundred years, you have a very effective cultural conquest. But of course, it doesn't happen overnight. But this is the catalyzing moment. Right. And it's interesting, like William, when he died, it didn't, it wasn't even clear whether or not he wanted one of his sons to rule Normandy and England, or whether he wanted one of his sons to rule Normandy and another one would rule England. Nobody was really sure what he, and he wanted didn't clarify no and i mean he just his relations with his kids were so sour at the end that i think even he wasn't sure who he wanted um i would think he would probably say it shouldn't be one person because he definitely struggled maintaining power and authority in two places you know cuz you have to remember we're talking 10 the 10 you know I keep wanting to say the ten hundreds. That's not right. You know, I'll say eleventh century. It's not like you can just zip back and forth. No, I mean the English Channel is not, you know, a super large body of water, but it was really difficult to cross mm-hmm. by ship. And then, I mean, we talked about this, right? Like even a couple generations after this, there's a shipwreck on this very crossing that leads to Matilda and Stephen struggling for the throne. But they're making the exact same crossing here. Right. And so it's like if you cross, you're gone for years, not months. So I think he really struggled with that. And um, it's interesting. So so anyway, like I said, you know, this whole 
story is really a tale of three kings and it really is like I don't know how you could kind of unentwine their stories and I will tell you you know what's really interesting about this Claire is up until this explanation of it I kind of always thought of William as like the bad guy coming and taking Harold's rightful throne but like I'm not sure I think either of them need like deserve the throne (laughs) Well, to be fair, I read a book about William, so I think it was written a little, a little bit slanted to him. <laughs> but Harold, you know, like Harold, and this this just goes back to how now that Norman idea of succession has been so deeply ingrained in the British monarchy is that Harold, you know, I'm sitting here like Harold didn't have a blood claim to the throne. He had no right to it, but the Saxons didn't care. Well, neither of them had a blood claim, which is really Well, William was related to Edward the Confessor. Remember, they were cousins. Through his mother, though. Sure, but the Saxons didn't have a rule against the, um, you know, succession through a female like the French did. Okay. You know, like the Saxons, they just had different criteria they were working with. So, like, they were happy. But it's so interesting because William is French and has the claim through his mother, but is perfectly happy to adopt the Saxon way yeah because edward was like you're my heir yeah and so whether that conversation happened or not you know i think what it probably did happen is edward was really mad at godwin had banished him and was looking around and was like i need to set someone up so that they know i'm serious and so maybe he did tell william when i die i want you to take my throne but then when they reconciled you know, I don't think he ever told William, oh, you're not needed anymore. Because it's really, really clear, regardless of the circumstances, William, at least, seems to think this was his. It's not like he just looked across the channel one day and was like, you know what, I think I'd like England. Right, like he was specifically, he thought, given this, this right. Yeah. That's the story of Harold, but really the story of William and Edward the Confessor, and Harold's kind of the glue that holds them together. Poor Harold. It's a grisly episode, Claire. The harrying of the north, the pokers in the eyes, the arrows in the eyes, or the arrow in the eye and or the hacking by a death squad. (laughs) Well, what got me was like, I was reading and it was like, yeah, he poked his eyes out with hot pokers. Um, you know, so that he wouldn't be able to claim the throne. And I'm literally like, but did he die? And then the next sentence was like, and he died. <laughs> I was like, well, obviously. <laughs> like, ugh. I wonder if they just drove the pokers in too far. I don't really want to speculate. I mean, it could just be yeah. a simple infection. I don't know. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to treat a wound like that in it could be shock. It could be he had a heart something. attack. I don't I don't know. You know, there's so many options. It's just a terrible way to go. And and you know, I mean I there's so much material here. Like then there was like a question of like why William and his brother did that in the first place. And it was apparently at their mother's invitation. Although she later claimed that Harold the Canute's half brother forged a letter to them although everybody was like no like Harold was becoming really popular in England so she invited the boys back as like a way to counteract that so she was kind of a shady character too yeah I mean you know she married her husband's murderer <laughs> so I guess she, she might you know well to be fair to her she had very few avenues available to her right. i'm sure right. and was probably just trying to survive yeah and she maybe she just didn't want to go to a nunnery i don't know i mean that's probably it like she had two options go to a nunnery or marry the guy who killed your husband i mean we don't have to make that kind of decision so yeah, yeah. it's just kind of interesting it's hard to so judge yeah if you're interested in more about this i do recommend reading about it um it was really interesting to read about these figures that loom very large in the history of the monarchy and then you know the facts when you're actually getting into it are not really what you expect them to be so that was kind of interesting um like Edward no, the Confessor wasn't new... really much of a king yeah I have a whole new like understanding of like 
who I think deserved what and who is maybe not that great of a ruler. <laughs> yeah. No. Looking at you, Edward. Yeah, I mean, he really, yeah, very weak, very weak ruler. Um, but, you know, he's mostly remembered because he was so pious, pious. and religious. His legacy is a chair. It's the chair of Edward the Confessor that they sit on while they're crowned king or queen. Allegedly. Allegedly. You're right. Yeah. It does look It was old. his slippers that Charles I put on during his coronation and like, shocked everybody. <laughs> they're like, you're not actually supposed to wear those. <laughs> That's funny. All right. All well, right. who are we talking about in our final episode on depositions? Edward II. Edward II, another Edward. Is he, I'm hoping, a better ruler than Edward I? Edward the Confessor is not Edward I. Oh, you're right. Oh, there's so many Edwards. Once you once the Normans come, you start over. That's right. So so William is William I. Mm-hmm. And Edward I is Edward Longshanks. And uh, Edward II is his ill-fated son. All right. Well, we'll talk about him next time. And that will be our last episode in this series. Yes. Um, Yeah. So we'll be back next week with Edward II. Till then. All right. Till then. Bye. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.